0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Marus, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the digital disruption happening in the banking industry. From the way financial services are delivered to the organizations delivering these services, change is happening faster than ever before. For a perspective on the future of banking, I'm joined today by one of the foremost authorities on where the banking industry is heading, my friend and mentor, Brett King. Brett has been referred to as the King of Disruptors. He's a best-selling author, commentator, and host of the weekly radio show, Breaking Banks. He's also the founder of the neobank Movin' and has advised the Obama White House. Finally, he's one of the most prolific global speakers on both what is happening in the banking industry as well as business overall.
1: Welcome to the show, Brett. It's my extinct pleasure to be here. No, that's not right, distinct pleasure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's good, but um, you know, Brett, we go back a long ways, and and during all the the journey that we've had, I I think one topic that we, we keep on talking about is what's gonna happen in the future, and as with anybody else, we get some right and some wrong, the range is broad. You you know one of the things that you came up with in uh, Bank 2.0 that is becoming more and more a, a reality right now is um, the closing of branches and the and the doing banking in a different way altogether. Can you give us a little update on that whole thought and and you know a little bit about what you said in Bank 2.0, but also an update on what you said in Bank 4.0 and if I know you're not going to write Bank 4, 5.0, but what do you see the future being.
1: Actually, I I wrote a book in between bank two and bank three, which was called Branch Today Gone Tomorrow. And so that sort of says it all. But, um, you know, if you look at the trend globally, and this is what I picked up back in, you know, the, the, the noughties, uh, as they call it, you know, the early 2000s, was that internet banking had already started to change consumer behavior. The way they would look for information on their bank account, the way they would process information, the way they would look for support. We, for example, I, I did a lot of work with HSBC back in the day, and little things, you know, were big indicators of this like for example you know we, we found a usability issue on uh, you know HSBC's website and their uh, their telephone uh, call center system in terms of menu structures and so when we surfaced within internet banking the ability to change your address as a simple thing around the bank account then call center traffic dropped off uh, like the next day after we released that functionality by 8% right? Um, And so because people were calling asking how they changed their address or changing to do that on the phone. But beforehand, they'd obviously looked in internet banking to try and solve that problem. So extending that out, I realized that behaviorally, the way people would consume banking, the way they would use a bank account in their life, was going through this material change. And so I actually started to track that back in the mid-90s. And the main indicator of this was purely the number of times a customer visits a bank branch in a year. And so that number has been declining consistently since since the mid 90s. So back in the mid 90s, before we had internet banking, we would visit the branch sometimes twice a month. And so that adds up to 24, say, 26 times, you know, a year. And that was what uh, you you would see quite regularly in places like the United States or Australia. But today, most people don't visit a bank branch once a year. And so that has to change the basic economics of the way you think about um, banking, distribution and services. It's
0: interesting because... Back in the day when people were building the financial model for why mobile banking was a necessity and why you needed to have a mobile banking app was because they said, you know, the, the old thing of, well, it costs $3.19 to process a deposit and only costs like $0.19 cents with mobile banking. And, and the model was such that – Yeah,
1: I used to quote those numbers. It said,
0: yeah. okay, we're going to – if we do that, it's going to only be $0.19. Cents. And that assumed that we'd actually get rid of tellers – platform management, and branches. That has not really been the case, despite the fact that the economics are so biased and there's so many branches that right now are, at least in my opinion, I'm knowing yours, significantly
1: overstaffed. Well, I I think um, there's two issues at play here one is the cost of servicing a customer and how you do that and you know there's an argument to be said that these additional channels have just added additional complexity or additional service points for banks to to cater for but there's another element if you look at you know half of the banks in the united states today Half of them, you can't open a bank account online at the bank's website. You have to physically go into the bank branch to open an account. So if you're a community bank in Middle America and you don't have that ability on your website, the only way you're going to get customers to open a bank branch is coming in and signing a piece of paper. And so that's not necessarily a point of proof that the Internet has failed. It's a point of proof that the industry has been fairly slow to adapt. We have, you know, we have 145 challenger banks around the world today, the largest of which is WeBank in China with 180 million customers. That's more customers than JPMorgan Chase. And these 145 challengers, none of them have bank branches. So I think that sort of proves you don't need a bank branch to be a bank, and customers don't need bank branches to be a customer of your bank in the digital age. Well, it's interesting because I, I remember back when
0: Bank 2.0 was written that uh, you know a lot of bankers took almost offense to your comments that said branches are no longer going to be in existence, and people misread that as being that you were, you were saying banks were dead. Well, that wasn't really what you were saying, was it?
1: No, I was known as the branches dead guy for you know quite a few years there and I would get accosted at conferences and people would say, how dare you? And, you know, uh, the branches are the lifeblood of the community and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, the reality is that I just believe in re-engineering customer experiences to optimize the experience for, you know, people and the, the, their day-to-day access to banking. And when you look at the way we can assume banking, the way we use banking, you come to this realization that actually when you look at banking, it's pretty simple. What we ask from a bank is three primary things. The ability to safely store money, the ability to safely move money from one person to another or pay at a store, and the ability to access credit when I don't have enough cash to do what I need to do. That's the core utility that we get from a bank. None of that utility specifically requires the infrastructure we've built around bank branches in the past. That's that was a constraint of the system back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. It's not a constraint, uh, you know, of how we do banking today. So if you sat back from the problem and you said, how would we design a bank account? or a banking platform to be optimized for a customer's life for when and where they need the bank's involvement. You wouldn't come up with a design today That included bank branches. And so that's the point of Bank 4.0, which is where we talk about first principles engineering thinking and the way design thinking can really change the way you think about banking being embedded in the life of a customer.
0: We have some large banks that have have tried to build or are building what I'm going to call digital-only extension of their bank brand. Uh, The most familiar is probably Chase Bank. But yet Chase Bank just recently shut down their mobile-only platform and said basically they're just going to roll it into their, their branch platform. At the same time, as is the case in my neighborhood, they're building branches. We're not just talking about small, easy, accessible branches. We're talking about two-story brick buildings that look like the branch of the 1950s. What's going on there?
1: You know, if you actually look at the numbers of bank branches that chase services, they've like the big four banks in all of the big four banks in the United States since at least 2008, we've seen about a 2% two, two to 3% decline in the total branch numbers across the US. But in the big four, we've seen closer to a 15 to 20% decline in the total branch numbers. And that's happening because customer behavior is changing. People just aren't visiting bank branches as often. But what they're doing is they're getting smarter about where they put branches and how they optimize their, their real estate to get footfall traffic and access to people who might walk into a bank branch. So they're closing branches that get low foot traffic, that have too big, uh, you know, they're too large in terms of square footage, and they're downsizing those branches into smaller footprint france but in in better locations and so they are starting to see, you know we're starting to see sort of this right sizing of the branch network in the united states but if you take the You know the the fifteen to twenty percent decline in total branch numbers that we've seen from the likes of B of A and Wells Fargo and so forth over the last ten or so years. That should be canary in the coal mine, an early warning sign for what's going to happen to other banks in the US. The key to remember is this, Jim. If you look at the data, there's nothing in the data that suggests right now that we're going to have a return to customers coming back to the bank branch as their primary day-to-day banking channel, especially millennials. Okay, so why close Finn then? If that's the case, why do
0: you you know we we all can speculate, but that's what we do on the show. Why yeah. do you think Finn
1: closed then? Well, we've had a mixed bag of success with the pure plays. You know, you've got Digibank, which is DBS's brand in uh, India, which they launched the digital pure play there. You've got UBank in Australia, which was launched as a you know a fairly a limited scope in terms of product, but has been very successful at raising deposits, for example, in Australia. So there are some digital pure plays that have worked, but FIN didn't work. And if you examine the reasons why, it's probably organizationally related not related to digital adoption. So when you went to go and sign up for Finn in the United States, if you lived in an area where Chase had a bank branch, you couldn't actually sign up for Finn. They would say, sorry, Finn is not available in your area right now. If you want Chase's banking services, you go to the bank branch. So what they were doing is they were trying not to cannibalize their branch business because they know how sensitive it is to changes in behavior right now. So they were limiting access to places like St. Louis, St. Louis, where they don't have branch networks in place. And hence, that was where they launched FIN when they did. So what you're getting down to
0: then is maybe because the fact that no bank is going out of business financially right now, that the culture overall
1: is one of the biggest challenges to really embracing the digital future. Well, you know, I work with banks all around the world, and they all tell me they know the, the writing is on the wall. They all tell me they can see the data behind declining branch activity. They can see customers engaging more on digital channels. And so they know where this is heading. But think about the org structure think about the organizational chart the KPIs all of what's been built over you know the last 40 50 years in these banks it's geared towards selling products in the branch the product structures are made for physical distribution using an application form in the branch and and that is a constraint you know cuz you've you've got to change the organizational culture you've got to change the thinking you've got to change the KPIs the org chart all of that to be at a successfully Do digital in the way a pure play like MoveIn or N26 or Monzo, for example, might do that because we don't have any of those constraints. We don't have those legacy processes or policies or you know IT architecture that we've got to adapt. We've just come in with a new stack and new operating standard, right?
0: So when you you just brought up Monzo and and N26, and and so we're seeing a little bit of infiltration of the US from. UK-based fintechs,
1: do you think they're going to be successful? Well, I hope they are, because I think there's this sort of category creation that occurs with digital. You look at the likes of Amazon and those early businesses, they struggled in those first few years. But then once people got used to buying stuff online, once there was no, you know, the perception changed about using your credit card online, you know, these businesses really boomed. And so, you know, when Josh, for example, uh, you know, from Simple, when when they were doing Simple and I was doing Movement. And we would never see each other as competitors. We saw each other as category creators, you know, that we're in the same tranche trying to get people to recognize that banking was going digital and it was a, a suitable alternative to the big guys. And so, you know, from N26 and Monzo's point of view, I think them coming in will accelerate the overall adoption of digital banking in the U.S.
0: So you have a situation like in Amazon that, as you said, start off saying, we just want Households, customers engaged, but they've moved from using a pla- They're using a platform-based solution to build a, a, a neighborhood or a marketplace for all the services they provide. And we've gotten to the place where Amazon now can charge one hundred twenty dollars a year for the right to shop at Amazon. Now they've added other
1: services, but is this the way banking will probably go? Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the top eight technology companies in the world. They're all platform businesses. Amazon, Alibaba, Apple, Google, Netflix, and so forth, right? So these are beyond just monoline businesses. They're starting to extend their platform, but you know, we're talking about a massive shift towards platform infrastructure now in terms of e-commerce and access to to services. And that's only going to get significantly greater when you start using voice as a channel for commerce, when you start using, um, you know, augmented reality and smart glasses and things like that. You know, the, the platforms that own those devices that you use become a gateway for access to a whole range of services. And the more we build in AI to customize those services or personalize those services to the individual, the more they'll get used to using those platforms because they're so in tune with their needs and behavior.
0: Well, it's interesting. Last week, I was in uh, at a, uh, a planning session for a credit union and Chris Kovach from Constellation uh, Digital Partners was there and they, they're building a platform solution for financial institutions, credit unions in this case, where they have over 180 different fintechs that they're representing to bring a platform of solutions, innovative solutions, on a very agile basis that the credit unions that they represent can then take up or not take up, even to the personalized level. And I I was astounded because I'm going, you know, if this becomes a trend and if organizations can get out of their banker mode and actually look at what the marketplace wants, this is revolutionary because it, it really builds. And, and you started it at Movin where where you were building new solutions that were never thought of before. But if, if you had, let's say, a platform of – you know, 180, 200 different fintechs that are dying for the positioning in your marketplace or yours and, and Simple's and Monzo's and N26's, and, and you can build the agility in place, I don't see how traditional financial institutions can compete
1: against that if they don't join the parade. When it comes to credit unions and community banks, if they don't become part of some sort of platform architecture, then you know it's, it's gonna be extraordinarily tough. I've always advocated for the credit unions to get together collectively to try and develop uh, those platform technologies and capabilities. So I'm a big believer in that. But ultimately, what we're getting is, as customers is we're getting more control. The problem for banks is that as we get that control, it's the experience layer, this technology layer, whether it's your phone or, you know, a, a smart speaker or your smart glasses in a few years' time, you will have the ability to solve a problem like getting access to credit in a uh, Apple store to buy a new iPhone or, or something like that. You'll have that ability contextually. And you won't necessarily care who underwrites the credit. The brand may be there, but you just if the if the solution is presented you in the store, you know tailored to your need, I, I know you're interested in buying an iPhone. Here's a special financing deal, twelve months' interest fee to do that today. That's the sort of stuff that really, really is going to impact.
0: You know what's interesting, though, is we look at this, we we see the potential there, and the marketplace is moving so slow how do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the 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 slowness of the marketplace?
1: That's I've spent my you know the last ten years of my career doing that, shock, trying to shock people into uh, action, move them to action. Yeah, you know, look, this is not new. You know if you look over the last three hundred years when you see technology disruption, every time a major new technology has come along, the incumbent industry has resisted the change. It happened with horse and cart in New York and London, you know, when the automobile came along. It, You know, it happened with the telephone. You know, there was, uh, there was actually, um, I can't remember the, the individual now, but someone was sued by the SEC for making a claim on the stock market that one day you would be able to talk across the Atlantic on a telephone, They sued them for making a false statement to the stock exchange to bolster their stock. So we have this history. Of a large-scale resistance. Why do humans resist change the way we do? I don't know. It's, it's built into our behavior. We like to get comfortable. We like to, you know, to have things the way we, we do. But the ability to actually embrace change and disrupt yourself as you have, Jim, is actually a fairly unique skill set. Most people, they just get comfortable in the way they are, and so when something comes along that forces them to reevaluate or change their behavior, they see it as a threat rather than an opportunity.
0: Well, and the complacency as the banking industry has basically lost, I'll say, 80% of the payments business in one way or the other, and, and they, there may be some dispute about that, but you know, I look at the way I use PayPal, I look at the way I use Venmo, I look at the way I use Square, I look at the way I use Stripe. It has really transformed my thought about my solution providers. And while my bank will still see that I have deposits going in and out, they're not even seeing the fact that those deposits in and out are all to square, are all to stripe. And they don't now have the information platform to build the next layer of solutions. So, you know, what do I get from PayPal regularly? I get offers for business loans and bridge loans and lines of credit that my bank would make me come in the branch and fill out a form for. They're offering it for me because they know exactly what my transaction flow is, how I would pay it back. And isn't that where we're going with almost every layer of service from savings to investments to
1: payments to loans? absolutely in fact this is where the chinese market has the us beat right now you know they did 22 and a half trillion in mobile payments last year between two providers alipay and tencent wechat pay that's more than collectively, all of the MasterCard and Visa debit card and credit card transactions in the entire world last year, right? Now when that happened in China, and a lot of it's to do with the form factor, you know, they had facial facial recognition payments and all of this stuff they built, but they made it so seamless, so easy to do. And all the banks then suddenly saw at the start of the month, people would send money to the Alipay account, and that's all they'd see because all of the, the day-to-day transactions that they would use on discretionary spending disappeared overnight. And they didn't know what people were buying, um, because that was all going through these mobile wallets. And then Alipay noticed that people were leaving some money in their mobile wallet at the end of the month. So they didn't spend all of their discretionary spending, and they had a little bit of cash left over at the end of the month. Now, banks would think, well, why don't you transfer that back into your primary account and we'll put it in a savings for you something. That's not what happened. People started to sa- use a savings platform called Yui Bao on Alipay. And today, that is the most successful savings deposit product in the world. Over a third of the Chinese banked population has a savings account with Alipay, Yui Bao. That's just incredible. But that is the sort of scale of change we're seeing. So-
0: You're known as a futurist and a king of disruptors, certainly in the banking industry. If you're looking at the next three, maybe five years, what are you seeing as the biggest change that we'll be able to look back on at that point and say, I didn't see it coming or maybe I did see it coming, but it completely changed the banking industry?
1: Well, three to five years is a bit tough. Ten years maybe is a little bit easier. But I think over the next three to five years, the one thing um, that we're going to have is that the challenger banks and the fintechs will have essentially defined the customer experience expectations in the market. We've already seen this happen in the UK with the challenges there. We've seen it with the tech giants in uh, China, that basically these companies have reframed customer expectations and banks have to lift up to that standard. So wherever there are fintechs entering the market, that's changing the standard. You go a bit beyond that, though, and you now have a situation where I just saw this uh, a note this morning, Monzo's hit 3 million users, which means one in 20 people in the United Kingdom have a Monzo uh, bank account today. And you look at the Chinese market, 67% of the Chinese population has a, as a fintech they use on a daily basis. So you play that out 10 years and you We've got major brands now that own day-to-day banking and own day-to-day payments that are non-traditional players that are these new fintechs. And I think the biggest bank in the world will be a technology company by 2030. It's probably going to be Ant Financial, the parent company of, of Alipay. That's who you've got to compete with if you're a bank. And the longer that financial institutions, the traditional financial institutions wait to
0: determine if they're going to buy, play, partner, whatever... It gives more and more runway to the Monzo's and the N26's and the, yeah. the, you know, the organizations. And right now, a lot of people are saying, yeah, but there's only their secondary account that people are using. Well, <laughs> if I'm using Monzo for three years and I continually get better services and more enhancements to my account, eventually, it's You're no switch. longer my secondary yeah. account. And exactly. what happens is because it's so hard to close out Traditional financial institution accounts. You just leave it open. Yeah. You're you're gonna you're gonna see traditional financial institutions going. We don't see any attrition, but the reality is the relationship is completely changed. Brett, I, I it would be foolhardy because it's always great to to find out what you're doing. What's coming up in your life? What's coming up? Uh, not only where you're going, but but I know you're working on a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: My next book is called The Rise of Techno Socialism it's wow. a sequel to augmented it's designed to come out in the middle of the election cycle next year in the united states so hence hence the name but actually it looks at the social problems that we're experiencing right now with inequality and the threat of climate change and artificial intelligence and techno-based unemployment and all of those forces and how they'll coalesce over the next 20 to 30 years and change sort of political economic and social structures around the world so it's true future future Stuff and uh, it's really exciting. It's, it's probably my most ambitious work to date. As I've been researching this over the last couple of years and starting to put this together, it sort of blows my mind some of the stuff that we've come up with.
0: Well, that, that must be the bell tonus we're done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No problem. It's interesting is you look at that and you just go, you know, we're we're seeing it already. But you're just going to keep a foot in the financial space because, you know, no industry is going to be disrupted more by automation and robo and, and AI than probably the banking industry. Maybe not the loss of jobs, but we're going to be in a really t- tremendous pressure to train and retrain people. For the future, and we're we're not talking about the people right now that are disgruntled because of you know and are reacting to Brexit and reacting to Trump, whatever else. We're talking about what I call the traditional middle class that has never been at risk of their jobs. And they're all going to have to disrupt themselves and take on something new.
1: Absolutely. And you know what, Chase, um, you know, we were talking about Chase before. They, they have let go a third of their their employee base over the last uh, six years. And so, you know, if you don't believe this is not already happening, then, uh, you know, you look at the big banks and, and the moves they've made, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, they've all done layoffs in the tens of thousands of employees. So that is already proof of, of these structural changes but every industry that has humans doing repetitive process or following a set of rules is potentially at risk from, uh, you know, robotic process automation and artificial intelligence. Where it really gets funky, and I know we're running out of time, but is that it actually starts to change the basics of supply and demand economics. Because in the old days, when you had increased demand for a product or service, as you ramped up supply, you would have to get labor participation, increased labor participation to meet that demand. But when a AI is responsible for supply, an increase in demand that results in an increased supply situation may result in in increased processing cycles for an AI, but not actually new jobs. So that's where it gets really crazy,
0: and it can completely disrupt the not only the social economic structure, but it can get to unrest and everything else. Because a lot of people are going to get disrupted by this. Hence, why Trump and Brexit because of the economic uncertainty. Unfortunately, if you look, peel back the layers, most of these people wished and still wish that we could take back, you know, turn back time and not have change happen, and that's not going to happen. Brett, I just want to tell you, thank you so much. You've been, a, a, as I said, a mentor and a, and a guidepost for me over the years. And and uh, yeah, I really appreciate you being on our, one of our
1: early shows. Um, I'll tell you what people always say to me in this instance, Jim. They say, long-time listener, first-time caller. There we go.
0: <laughs> well, and and you can pick up our podcast on Tuesday mornings and please. Don't forget to listen to Brett King's podcast, Breaking Banks, on Thursday afternoons at 3 o'clock. Yes, Breaking Absolutely. Banks. Thank you very much, Thanks, Brett. Sir. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our amazing research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink and audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.